Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Today in our trek through the book of Luke, we get to the tremendous, awful, stunning, and beautiful moment of the cross. You know, the death of Jesus is an unjust moment. He is repeatedly declared innocent, yet it didn't matter. What happened to Jesus that day was the worst that men could do. Betrayed by his own nation, handed over to the enemy to be mocked and ridiculed and beaten and tortured. So today's message is titled, The Darkest Day in History. The Darkest Day in History. And many days and events throughout history have claimed to be the darkest day or the darkest hour or the darkest time. You may remember the film that came out a few years ago called The Darkest Hour, which was chronicling Winston Churchill's leadership through World War II, which you can you know, qualify as a dark time. Joe Biden, he called last year's chaos at the Capitol, the darkest day in American history. Um, you know, the, there's all sorts of moments throughout time. Many consider 9-11 the darkest day in American history. There's actually an entire time period in history that claims to be very dark. It's called the Dark Ages, right? That happened between the 5th and 14th centuries. And personally, we've all had dark times, dark days, dark seasons, periods of mourning, sadness, days that were dreadful. How many of you have had an awful, terrible, bad day in your life? We call those days dark days. We assign darkness to a lot of things. But this scripture that we just read reminds us that in Christian history, we believe the darkest day in history is this day in ancient Jerusalem, the day that Christ was crucified on the cross. You know, since that time, 2,000 years have passed, and the cross has become, has become an important symbol of that moment, hasn't it? That's what we think of when we think of the moment of his crucifixion. We don't necessarily think about the darkness. We think about the good things that came from the cross. We think about the fact that Christ did something for us to offer us love and grace, and so the, the symbol of the cross has become synonymous with grace and love. And the cross is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, it's everywhere we turn. We wear the cross. <laughs> we decorate our homes with the cross. We tattoo on our bodies crosses to express who we are. You know, the, the, the cross is a symbol for us that we utilize as a religious sort of symbol to say that either A, we are open to God, but more than likely that we're some sort of, some, somehow devoted to God. Maybe we're even a devout follower of Jesus. We use the cross to tell others, I claim Jesus. I saw uh, a shirt the other day, one of those Christian t-shirts that it said, I roll with Jesus. <laughs> so we use the cross to tell others, I roll with Jesus. How many of y'all like Christian t-shirts? <laughs> I'll break the mood for just a moment on the, in the name of Christian t-shirts. I saw another one that said, 
Jesus is my rock and that's how I roll. <laughs> I like I roll with Jesus. But I knew I was going to mention this I roll with Jesus t-shirt idea. And I thought, can I show you my favorite Christian t-shirt? The cringeworthy creativity is worth every second. Y'all ready? You want to see? I got a photo. All right, check it out. Catch up with Jesus. It's not done. Let us, let us praise him and relish him because he loves me from my head to my toes. Come on. And if you want the whole condiment Christian t-shirt, the whole brand, there you go. We don't have the time to go through it all, but I just love this. May your light shine. Spread it around. Church merch coming. Do not ask me how my mind went here when I was preparing this message on the cross that all of a sudden I'm thinking about Christian t-shirts and I'm showing you my favorite. Don't worry about how it happens. Just thank God that it does happen. You got this today. Yes, you're welcome. You've been blessed. <laughs> Let's bring it back, shall we? To the cross, right? The cross is the symbol that says, I claim Jesus, I roll with Jesus. We wear it as an accessory around our necks, perhaps with great meaning and great purpose. But during the days of Jesus, the cross was obviously understood and seen as an execution method. It was comparable to the electric chair. And so in some ways, not to bring a negative light to it, but we wear an execution method around our necks. But what's cool about that is that what was once bad has become good. It's a paradoxical sort of thing. The cross is one of the best paradoxes in history. First Corinthians 1.18 says it this way when it talks about the cross. It says, the message of the cross is, the fool is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. Everyone say power of God. Listen, it also says, though, that to some, it's, the, it's foolishness. Have you ever met someone that says, oh, man, faith is just a sign of weakness? Have you ever met someone that says, oh, the Bible is just a bunch of stories and fables and fairy tales? And, and listen, in some ways, I understand where that person is coming from if they've never experienced the power of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to some. And so I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're coming in fully believing that it's the power of God or if you're coming in fully believing that it's the foolishness of man or if you're somewhere in between. But what my prayer and my hope is today is that you connect more deeply with the story of the cross than you ever have and to connect more deeply with what Jesus did for you through the cross. Because in some ways, in some ways it should take it should, it should surprise all of us a little bit that we even know the story of Jesus and the cross. You know, it's been 2,000 years, and when Jesus came, of course, it happened in an era where there was no media, no printing press. There was no reason that this story went viral. There was no reason that the news of Jesus spread like it did. You know, Jesus comes into a world during a time in history that the world should have missed this man from Nazareth who came from a nowhere town, a nowhere family with no position. Jesus, sure, he stirred up a little bit of dust for the moments that he was um, public, if you will. 
but then he died on a cross. And in many ways, if you think about the story, the world should have missed it. The world shouldn't know about Jesus. We shouldn't know about the cross unless the cross is not where the story ends. Unless everything about Jesus is true, we should have missed this story unless something about this story is powerful because the message of the cross is the power of God. That's the only way that story doesn't die with them, right? And that's some of what it means when we start to connect this cross to the power of God and the Holy Spirit moving in this world. Jesus declared when he hung on the cross when he, and through the cross, he declared that the cross is for every man, every woman, every Jew, every Gentile, every nation, meaning every American, every Asian, every African, every Arab, every European, every Latino. He says it's for every mother, father, son, and daughter. He said it's for every Democrat, every Republican. It's even for the libertarians. It's even for the independents and the anarchists. It's for every drug addict, missionary. It's for the, it's for the prisoner. It's for every run-of-the-mill, salt-of-the-earth human being. The cross is for everyone. Everyone needs it. The cross is truly for everyone. This is what Jesus declared. And the ultimate example of redemption is the cross. What was once bad became good. Historically, the cross is a symbol of terror and cruelty and death. And today it's seen as a symbol of love and grace. And it truly is the symbol that we utilize for God. God redeemed it. God redeemed the cross. And we get to stand here and go, wow, there is power in the cross. And the entire death of Jesus, by the way, is one paradox after another. What's bad is also good. What's powerful becomes powerless. What's dark is really light. Here's what I want to do today. I want us to focus in on Luke 23, verses 44 through 46. In those few verses, we read the brief account of the actual death of Jesus Christ. And it's also in those verses where we encounter a darkness that is breathtaking. Remember, this is the darkest day in history. Are you all wanting to dig into this today? Yeah. You all ready to go and do the deep dive into the deep end? Yeah. Give me an amen if you're ready. Yeah. Good. Verses 44 through 46, Jesus is on the cross. Now, we know from various scriptures that Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m. on that Friday morning. Before 9 a.m., probably between the hours about 5 a.m. and 9 a.m., Jesus had went before the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. He had been on trial before them. Then he went on trial before Pilate. So in those few hours, a lot happened, and Pilate made quick work of it. And by 9 a.m., he had sentenced Jesus to be crucified. And by noon, Jesus was hanging on the cross. So between 9 a.m. and noon is the ridicule, the mockery, the, the sarcasm and the beatings, right? But then, and this is where we are, verse 44, chapter 23 of Luke. It was now about noon. Now, some versions of the Bible say it was the sixth hour. The Jewish clock started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would have been noon. It was now about noon and darkness. Everyone say darkness. Darkness, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. Everyone say stop. stop. The sun stopped shining. 
Has this verse ever mystified anyone? Has it ever Has it ever crossed your mind to think how in the world, in the middle of the day, it's high noon and the lights in Jerusalem go out? Black. It's pitch black. So the darkest day in history in this instance is not a metaphor, it's literal. It literally became the darkest day in history. It happened. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. on Passover day. Obviously, for these first three hours, ridicule and cruelty and sarcasm and hatred dominate the narrative. But at noon, it all ends because at that hour, God shows up, but he shows up in darkness. Thus the paradox. God is light, yet he shows up in darkness. At noon, it says that darkness fell over the whole land. Jerusalem literally went dark instantaneous pitch black the sun is gone can you imagine the shock the awe and the terror that ripped through that city you want to talk about being afraid of the dark right that would have been a frightening panic worthy moment they weren't ready for it they didn't have their lanterns there's no electricity it is utter darkness Have you ever experienced like pitch black dark? You ever experienced? It's weird, right? It's kind of scary, kind of weird. You know, the darkest, the darkest night I ever remember, it was actually dark for many, for many reasons. I was actually on a mission trip. I was, we were in Haiti, and it was just a few days, maybe 10, 14 days or so after the earthquake that rocked that nation in 2010, over a couple hundred thousand people died. It was a tragic thing, but we were there um, serving on a team and just at the Mission of Hope, just outside of Port-au-Prince. And while I was there, I was, a, I was assisting a paramedic. There was an ambulance at the mission and we were doing these ambulance runs. I have no medical background, but I'm just helping him do stuff, whatever he told me to do. And, and one night a, a woman at the mission sadly passed away and, and they asked us to drive her body over to where her family lived in this nearby village. And it was late, it was close to midnight, it was very dark. And uh, you know, the earthquake had crippled that nation in so many ways, it had taken out the, the power grid, it had dismantled the power grid. There's no electricity anywhere. They had no lights for months in that nation. And so once we drove away from the mission and their generators that were providing electricity and light, and we drove out of that, it was like we were driving into truly how dark that nation had become and what is it experiencing. And I remember getting to this family's home and it was deep into, honestly, into the darkness. And when we got there, we turned the car off and turned the headlights off. And as soon as we did that, um, I had never experienced something so dark. I mean, there was no lights anywhere. I couldn't see at all except a few inches in front of our face. And there's something about that kind of darkness when the lights are really out and there's no night lights or flashlights or hues. That's a very humbling place. I remember the heaviness and the silence that accompanied the darkness as we kind of help this family in this moment. 
But the people of Jerusalem, those who were shouting hours before, crucify him, crucify him, they were feeling good about themselves up until about noon. And when the dark came, nobody's feeling good about anything. The dark is a humbling place. It's heavy and it's silent. So what's the darkness about? What's really going on here? Where is it even coming from? Some have suggested that Satan had come and his darkness had, was coming over Jesus. But you have to know that Satan has no power over the creative natural world. He can't do that. He has power over morality and some spiritual darkness, but he has no power over the natural world. So what caused the darkness? Well, believe it or not, there's an ancient second century Roman historical record of this moment. I'll put it on the screen for you, but a Roman named Phlegon wrote this. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, yes, the Olympics, this is a ancient sports reporter. <laughs> His, so historians, by the way, have traced what the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad actually was. And they've traced it exactly to the year 33 AD, which would be consistent with the year that pretty much everybody believes Jesus was crucified. And this is what he says. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an, an extraordinary eclipse. Again, this is a Roman historian, not a Jewish one, not a Christian one. An extraordinary eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour. The day, the turn, or the day, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. It's amazing that this moment is recorded in Roman history. But what about his explanation of an eclipse? Seems like a natural, kind of smart, pretty obvious uh, way to explain what was going on in Jerusalem that day. Oh, it's a major eclipse. But there's actually two scientific explanations to tell you that it's not an eclipse. First of all, an eclipse never lasts three hours. But more importantly than that, this was happening on Passover day, which was always accompanied by the full moon. And an eclipse is scientifically impossible during a full moon. So it takes out the eclipse. Or maybe it's just, okay, so it's not an eclipse. Maybe it's a cloudy afternoon. It's not one of those either. This isn't like a thunderstorm's rolling in. It says that the sun stopped shining in the scriptures. And the Roman historian says that the day turned into dark night. This is not Satan. This is not this is not an eclipse. This is not some heavy thunderstorm. The only explanation of the darkness is God. The full presence of God shows up at Calvary. Do you understand? God had showed up in a lot of forms. He had shown up in a in a cloud, he had showed up in a pillar of fire, he had shown up in a burning bush, he had shown up even in a gentle whisper. Most of us don't think about Jesus or God, in this case, showing up in darkness. Why did he do this? Well, in Luke 22, a chapter previous to what we're reading right now, 
Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane. We talked about this last week. And this is what he says, verse 42. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. He says, take this cup. What is he talking about? Jesus used the figure of a cup, and this is consistent with repeated wording in the Old Testament because this cup, this cup becomes a picture representative of the wrath and the judgment of God. Isaiah 55, 17 says it this way, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15 says it this way, This is what the Lord said to me, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. There are several verses just like this talking about the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is the one who willingly drank the cup of God's fury and wrath so that we would not have to drink that cup ourselves. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve, uh, we all deserve God's wrath. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but God sent Jesus to drink that cup for us. God's wrath and judgment had to come. It had to be poured out. And God showed up in wrath in the form of darkness, and he doesn't pour it out on the Romans. He doesn't pour it out on the Jewish leadership. He doesn't pour it out on the people of Jerusalem. He pours it out on his son, Jesus Christ. God unleashed the full extent of his fury on that cross and on the shoulders of Jesus. This is heavy. None of the Gospels indicate that Jesus speaks during those three hours of darkness. There's a heaviness, there's a silence to it, a terror. And during those three hours, the wrath of God comes upon Jesus. I just want you to know, I don't claim to fully understand it. I don't claim to understand how Jesus did it. I don't believe we have to fully understand everything about what God does, but what I do know is that Jesus did in three hours what humanity can't, couldn't do in 3,000 years or 30,000 years. We can't ever bridge the gap between us and God. Our sin has separated us from a holy, righteous, and perfect God, and the only way that God could reconcile us this because of the sin that has separated us was through the innocent life of Jesus. It was through his life that he reconciled the gap. Only Jesus could take what was bad and make it good. I want you to consider a part of this story to even help you wrap your mind around the innocent life of Jesus taking your place. There was a part of the story we, that Caitlin read a moment ago when Jesus was on trial and the people chose to free Barabbas and crucify Jesus, I want to remind us of this moment. It's Luke 23, verse 18. It starts like this. Pilate says, he has done nothing to deserve death. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Whoever that guy is. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, 
Pilate appealed to them again. Before you get any compassion for Pilate, just know he was the most brutal Roman governor in the history of this region. But he does have this moment when he's trying to free Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. But with loud shouts, they demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man, meaning Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder and surrendered Jesus to their will. I want you to catch this. The guilty goes free and the innocent takes his place. If anyone could say Jesus died for me on the cross, it's Barabbas. But Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that was for Barabbas. He drank it for him. And he drank it for you and for me and for every other person who's guilty. Why did he do it? The answer is pretty simple. Because God loves you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. God wants to let the guilty go free and he's the one to figure out how to make it happen. At three o'clock that afternoon, the darkness suddenly ends. Light is restored and Jesus speaks again. The Gospel of John records Jesus as saying, it is finished, indicating he's completed what he's intended to do. But back to Luke 23, verse 45, this is the moment when the lights come back on. Jesus says this, again, verse 45. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now there's a lot going on in this moment. Matthew, in another gospel, he records this moment was accompanied by a great earthquake and some other miraculous things going on in the city. But the curtain being torn in two, we could do a whole message about, but it was a sign. It was a sign that the old way of relating to God was over. No more priests sacrificing Passover lambs in the temple any longer. No more system in the temple that needs to take place. The new covenant through Jesus was now the way, the truth, and the life. No one would come to the Father except through Jesus. And that veil being torn marked that moment. Verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice. I want you to catch that. A loud voice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he heard this, he breathed his last. I was reading something pretty profound this week about that moment when Jesus breathed his last breath. But when Jesus called out in a loud voice, well, that shouldn't have been possible after hours of hanging on a cross because a crucifixion does something to your lungs. It causes asphyxiation where your lungs begin to be crushed on the weight of your body and you can barely breathe. That's what usually they die from on the cross. But here's Jesus at the end, 
doing something that shouldn't be able to be done. He is calling out in a loud voice. That's not possible. It indicates one thing to me that Jesus at this moment, at the end of his life is actually very strong. And after he calls out in a loud voice, he says, Father, I commit my spirit to you. And he breathed his last. Jesus came to do what he came to do. And when he was finished, he left on his terms and in his own timing, his life was not taken from him. He has been, he wasn't even breathing heavy at the end when he breathed his last. Jesus willingly went to the cross Jesus willingly endured the darkest day in history and he drank the full cup of God's wrath for all who would come to believe. So what do we do with this? Well, this week is Holy Week. This is a time and a place to recognize the full gravity of what Jesus did on the cross for us. It's not just a physical torture. It was a spiritual battle that took place where he overcame the gap that we could never overcome. It's not a martyr. We don't celebrate him because he, he's a martyr. There's a lot of martyrs that have existed in this world. He's more than a martyr. He's the son of God come to take on the penalty that we deserve. We're all Barabbas. We're walking out of prison wondering how in the world am I free right now? that someone innocent took my place. So what do we do with this? Well, I love the next verse. It's verse 47. <laughs> this is so cool. The centurion seeing what had happened. What? Seeing what had happened. What had he seen? Let's just say he showed up to work at nine o'clock that day. He's like, First three hours, it's nothing but mockery of this king of the Jews, so-called. Nothing but ridicule, nothing but, nothing but sarcasm. Hey, save yourself if you're the Messiah. Nothing but torture, pressing a crown of thorns into his head. Nothing but, nothing but ridicule for this man who said he was, the, he was the savior of the world. And they're like, no, 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 no. And then, boom, darkness falls on the land. God shows up in his holy glory pours out his wrath on this man. Terror rips through the city. What he had seen, he had seen a lot. And what did he do? Well, the lights come back on. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, it's finished. And he breathes his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God. What else can you do in that moment? I mean, seriously, that's all you can do after you've seen what you've seen. Matthew says that the centurion said, surely he was the son of God. Luke writes, surely he was a righteous man. The Roman centurion praised God, and I'm pretty sure that's, that's pretty much what we should do too. It should be a staggering and stirring reminder of what Jesus did, and it should be a knee-bending, humbling response of praise. That's all it demands. You can't do anything. You never could. 
That's why Jesus did. Remember the message of the cross is the power of God. The cross is for everyone. The Holy Spirit today is released in this world and it is using the power of the cross to reach people. As terrible as the cross was, because it was terrible, it becomes the light that shines in the darkness. It's in this moment that God announced to everyone that I am for you. Jesus is for you. God is for you. He announced it in this moment. And why else would he do what he did? Why would he sacrifice his son? Why would Jesus go to the cross? Why would he pour out his wrath? Because he loves you, because he's for you. Romans 8.31 says it this way. If God is for us, who can be against us? Catch this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all. Have I said it today? The cross is for everyone. It's for all of us. It's the power. The cross is for everyone. And like the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, the crucifixion and sacrifice of Jesus, it ought to do something in us. It ought, ought to cause a holy wonder where we stand stunned with gratitude and filled with praise. This is Holy Week for a reason. I think it's time to pray, actually. Let's pray together. Will you just stand with me? I want to pray. We're going to praise God. It's the only appropriate response. The Holy Spirit moves through praise and through the power of the cross. God, we want to praise you today. Would you just pray this, 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 this right now? Just open your heart up to prayer. Open your heart up to the Holy Spirit moving in your heart. Holy Spirit, we just praise you today. God, we just praise you today. We want to thank you. We want to stand in awe of your love today. We want to thank you for what Jesus did on the cross for us. I want to encourage you. How can you praise him this week? How can you, how can you set this week apart as holy for him? How can you declare lordship in your life of, Je of Jesus, right? How, how, what would this look like? week look like if you made Jesus the priority in all you do? God is so good. There's a reason we call this Friday, Good Friday. Something terrible happened, but eternal good came from it. Because God is good. Everybody say, God is good. Everyone say, God loves me. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you now for what you've done for us. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.